You sending the whoop? Shit, that's all you had to say. Get away from her, you bitch. Banana. Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. It's only an island if you look at it from the water. I'm your density. You think I'm gorgeous? You want to kiss? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sending the Wolf. My name is Clark Wolf. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you had a very Merry Christmas, a very Happy Hanukkah, and all of the things in between. Uh, It's the holiday season, and we still have a podcast. I find that whenever I would travel for the holidays, even though, yes, it's great to be with family and friends every now and again, you need a little break. And, um... Sometimes it's also nice to keep a routine, and so I always appreciate it when podcasts keep to their schedule, and so that's what we're doing this week here on Sending the Wolf. Um, If this is your first time joining me, thank you so much for being here, and if you are returning, thank you for returning. Today, I am welcoming my friend Scott Mance to the show. So this is actually kind of fun. Um, We've had several, I guess we've had four episodes so far on this show, and this is our fifth. However, This was the very first podcast episode that I recorded, and this I recorded this months ago. Um, You'll notice that you know while the format is still basically the same, um, you know I did very rookie things like leaving the air conditioner on. Oops, Um, I forgot to introduce Scott. I don't think I introduce him until maybe a couple of the 10 minutes and 19 minutes into the podcast or something like that. Um, But, you know, it was really, really nice of Scott to take a chance and to agree to do something that he hadn't even heard yet. Um, And uh, we're talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. As you will hear, this is one of Scott's favorite films. Um, You know, it's funny how these releases of this podcast have sort of been coming together. For instance, last week's episode with Jenny Mato, where we discussed Star Wars, A New Hope, um, it ended up being episode four of the show. And of course, A New Hope is episode four in the Star Wars saga, which was totally unplanned, but it's just kind of funny how that works out. Um, And this week we're dealing with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, the holiday season is an interesting time of year. We um, we are tasked with, I guess, reflecting on the 12 months that have come before. A lot of us are spending time with our family, old friends, new friends, loved ones. And, you know, look, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, sometimes being around your family can be a challenge. Sometimes it makes you feel great. Sometimes it makes you feel like you don't belong with these people. Sometimes it makes you feel like an alien. Do you get where I'm going with this? Um I didn't plan for Close Encounters to come out the week of Christmas, um, but it's kind of serendipitous that it did. I don't know. If you're anything like me and sometimes you feel like an outsider, I guess that's sort of what Richard Dreyfuss's character was going through in this film, even though I certainly do not condone his actions. But you'll hear you'll hear all of these things later in the show. Um 
As usual, just so you guys know, we are discussing this film as though you have seen it. So, spoiler alert. And also, since it's Scott Mance, uh, La La Land also comes up. And so, spoiler alert, spoiler alert for La La Land, I guess. Um, I guess that's it for now. Uh, I just want to remind you guys, if you haven't subscribed and uh, rated and reviewed the show on your podcast app of choice, please do. It helps other people find us. Um, and the more people that I actually have subscribing, the better chances I have to find advertisers for this show, um, which would be a big, big help. Um, and that's it. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Happy holidays to you. And here is my conversation about Close Encounters of the Third Kind with Scott Mance. Shining is not on your list. The Shining is not. I am not a Kubrick fan. I that to me, movie to me is the that for me it scares me every single time I watch it and I've seen it fifty. Why times do you think that is? Because it's unnerving. Huh? Because the descent uh, of his uh, you know of his you know his descent into. Uh, you know, killing his family. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, from the beginning of the movie, he looks like a disturbed, human, deranged human Absolutely. being. Absolutely. Um, so you know where it's going to go. But just the, you know, the Cooper was such a, a master craftsman of mood and atmosphere, mm-hmm. and just the, the. Uh, idea that, you know, is it in his head or Mm -hmm. is this place genuinely haunted? And it is haunted Mm -hmm. because the thing is, like, you know, you could argue that it's still in his head. He just gets a sick case of cabin fever. But when Jack Torrance was in the storage room, Mm -hmm. okay, after Wendy locked him in there. Yes. And (laughs) Jack is talking to Delbert Grady. Yeah. Through the door. Yeah. And he's saying, oh, I'm we're disappointed in you, Mr. Torrance. He goes, just let me out of here. I'll take care of it. Who unlocks the door? Yeah. So you're like, okay, this is legitimately a haunted, the place is legitimately haunted. It's not in their head. No. Just from cabin fever. Or you could argue, and this gives me the chills just saying this, Danny Torrance unlocked the door because, because. he was all... He was so connected to the hotel. You know, he was, he was a, a sort of a, a, a psychological conduit to everything that was going on in the hotel. Mm-hmm. And that he was the one who unlocked the door. Just a theory. To let, to let, but to let this menace out. Yes. Really? Yeah. You think so? I, I think it's a good theory. I think it's one that's <laughs> worth discussing. And, and just... And just, you know, I've, I've always liked The Shining, but when I saw Room 237. Yes. That. Oh just my, my gosh. World. That it's, rocked my world. Listen, it is. the So I love the novel. That's the first Stephen yeah. King novel I ever I can't read. I can't read it. It's so scary. It's it's edit, but it's so yeah, different. Like I'm sure you've heard him say, you know, the famous line of like uh, the, you know, what was it about about The Shining? It, Kubrick's movie was a cold movie, and my book was a hot book. So it was essentially just like, and that's fine. I, I admire taking an adaptation and sort of doing making it making it your own. Right. I think that's 100% okay. But for me, I in my emotions, I much more am in line with the Stephen King interpretation yeah. um, than than I am with the Stanley Kubrick interpretation. And look, when you have the author of your of the book denouncing the film that 
the, you know, the adaptation. It's not a good sign. I mean, you know, uh, 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 Stephen King famously denounced the film. Yeah. Said he didn't like it. Uh, but it's it's a it's a bad adaptation, but it's a great movie. And there you go. Yeah. And that's that's the thing. But that's what's and it's so funny you bring up Danny <laughs> Torrance uh, and you bring up The Shining because the movie that you and I are talking about today, which is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I so I rewatched it today. Okay. And I hadn't seen it when I was a kid. I watched this movie, and you know I think like a lot of maybe like a lot of little kids um, kind of got a little antsy. It's it's a slow it's a slow film. It's a slow. Would you say so or uh, no? Are we rolling? We are. Rolling. We are rolling. Okay. <laughs> Clark, here's the thing. First okay. of all, I I don't think it's a soul film at all. Okay. I actually think there's a lot going on in this movie. Definitely. And when I first saw the film on December 14th, 1977. Because that is the release date. That is when it came out. Mm-hmm. My dad, who took me to see the movie, I grew up in Philadelphia. Okay. So we went to the Leo Mall Movie Theater in Northeast Philadelphia, where I'm from. And... Yeah, I had just seen Star Wars like, you know, six months before mm-hmm. and I was a massive well, I say I say I was a massive Star Trek fan. Uh-huh. But Clark, I still am I know this about you, massive, Scott Man. Massive, <laughs> huge Star Trek fan. I still go home at night and, and just put on Star Trek just for the hell of it. I love it. Um but so he was excited to take me to this movie. And even as a little kid, I was scared. Uh, I thought the music was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I love the sci-fi aspect mm-hmm. of it. And I sort of, even as a little kid, I related to Roy Neary, the character played by Richard Dreyfus, mm-hmm. because he himself was a man-child. Yes. He had the train set. He wanted to take the kids to see Pinocchio. Yes. And he was not comfortable in his own skin. He was not comfortable in his own marriage. But... Over the years, when I go back and rewatch the film, mm-hmm. I am struck by how emotional I still get watching that movie. I still get moved to tears watching that film. Mm-hmm. Part of it's nostalgia mm-hmm. because I remember exactly where I was yeah. when I saw it, who I saw it with, my dad. Um, but as I've gotten older and gained a deeper perspective about film, the fact that the movie works on so many levels. Mm-hmm. On one level, it is really the first sublime, intelligent depiction of first contact yeah. with aliens on our planet. Before that, it was all the B movies of the fifties. Mm-hmm. You know, War of the Worlds. You know, well, Davy Earth still is a. You know, it's not a B movie, but but those movies were few and far between. Usually, they were you know the thing that came from outer space mm-hmm. kind of movies. And here was this film that was done with such class and such respect with its subject matter, and it was funny. It had humor. Definitely, it was incredibly intense and suspenseful. It was scary. The scene where they steal Barry. Oh, that sequence. To this day, that sequence directed by Steven Spielberg, uh, is so effective and terrifying. When all hell is breaking loose in that house and Barry sneaks out through the dog way door and, mm-hmm. and the aliens grab him and Melinda Dillon is, you know, she is hysterical. Like, and her performance, Melinda Dillon, she was nominated for yes. it. I mean, and then, the, you know, the door opens and, and she's running, Barry, yeah. Barry! But then, then when you... Uh, get to Devil's Tower mm-hmm. and you are, are it, it becomes this 
sub- sublimely beautiful film. It's so, it's so deeply moving mm-hmm. when, uh, you know, Richard Dreyfus and Melinda Dillon are on the mountain watching the first, the first wave of UFOs mm-hmm. uh, uh, fly around the mountain and the, the score by John Williams is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And that, you know, when you get to the end of the film and they had all these astronauts handpicked to go, yeah. but the aliens handpicked their own people. That's right. All those people who were smart enough mm-hmm. to make it to the mountain were handpicked by the aliens. Even uh, Lacombe, played mm-hmm. by Francois Truffaut, mm-hmm. says, you know, they belong here more than we. Mm-hmm. He, it, is a, it is an event sociological. You know, they were invited, is what Bob Balaban, the yeah. interpreter, says. And the, the, they were the ones smart enough to make it there. But only Richard Dreyfus and Melinda Dillon were the ones smart enough to make it over the mountain. Right. So when they're on the other side of Devil's Tower by the encampment, and all hell is breaking loose with the UFOs, and for that scene, and this gets me all the time, he goes, oh, let's go closer. And she goes, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. He goes, I, I, I can't stay here. And she goes, I can. And he goes, why? And he goes, because Barry's not here. Right. And he goes, and she goes, yeah, yeah, you go. And he goes, and he stops. Jeez. It's okay. Jeez, I was not expecting to do it's this. It's okay. That's, I think that's the whole point of this, really, because... The connections that we make to these films, they're considered the greatest. You know, film is something that moves people like you and like me. Clearly, we're we're adults, and this is this is our job to watch these things. And but we we found this because we love them. You know, we found it because we love it. And you know, when you when when uh, you know, there's been talk over the years, like Steven Spielberg has himself said how uh, if he had made the movie today. He would not have had Roy Neary ditch his family to go away yeah. on the spaceship. Yeah. So my reaction was, good thing he didn't make it today. Mm-hmm. Because the fact that he did leave everything behind to go because this was his destiny makes it a better film. And, uh, you know, when he goes up into the spaceship and the, uh, the alien walks out to Truffaut, Francois Truffaut mm-hmm. and, and Bob Albin, and he does the hand signal, da, 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 and they give it back. Yeah. It is so, it is such a beautiful moment of first contact. And it was unlike any movie about first contact that had ever been before, and only maybe two other films about first contact have come close to capturing not the same magic, mm-hmm. but a different magic of their own. One is Contact with Jodie mm-hmm. Foster by Robert Zemeckis in 97, and the other is Arrival, mm-hmm. directed by Denis Villeneuve, starring Amy Adams from 2016. And I, I very much uh, equate Arrival as a close encounters of the 21st century. You know, it's funny that you say that because I, I really noticed, you know, as like I mentioned, I, I haven't seen this movie since I was young. And um, I think it's because it's not, I mean, of course, my fam- my parents, I know my dad loves this movie. I told him when I was home this weekend that, that we were going to be talking about it. Um, but, uh, but 
it's not one that resonated me, with me as a kid. Right. And so I hadn't revisited it in a long time. And when I was watching it today, especially having seen Arrival so recently, I was just like, oh my God. Oh, yeah. And I knew even when I saw Arrival a couple of months ago and hadn't seen Close Encounters in a while, I was able to pick out the similarities Certainly. just from having Close Encounters right there in the pop culture mainstream and it yep. will forever be there. But um, but yeah, it, Arrival, dealing with... And look, dealing with communication, dealing with... Exactly. You, That's what Arrival is, yes. communication. And, uh, you know, when when Close Encounters came out in 97, uh, 1977, rather, it uh, was nominated for eight Academy Awards mm-hmm. and it won a special Oscar. Yep. Uh, it won a, 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 its main award for um, cinematography mm-hmm. and the special effects were done by... Uh, 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 what's his name? I don't know if I wrote it down because uh, I it did was, write it down. Uh, D- uh, Douglas Trumbull. There you go. Douglas That's Trumbull, right. who did the special effects for 2001 A Space Odyssey. He also did the special effects for my other favorite movie of all time, Blade Runner. Uh-huh. And, and like, you know, the movie starts off, you know, it's it's broken up into parts. You know, you have the part with the air traffic controllers. Mm-hmm. You have the part in the desert where they find the planes from uh, Flight 19. Mm-hmm. And then you have the stuff with Roy Neary and his family. And then you had the part with Melinda Dillon where she's living on her own. Yeah. And uh, one of my, my favorite scene in the film, actually, and it's such an iconic scene, is when Richard Dreyfuss is Roy Neary, is in his truck. Yes. In the, in the back road, and he's all by himself, and he's lost. Yeah. And so he, he sort of stops in the middle of the road. He's looking in his map. Headlights come up behind him, and he like waves, yeah, go ahead. And you see the lights go around mm-hmm. his car. The guy goes, you're in the middle of the road, jackass. <laughs> Roy Neary goes, can you tell me where cornbread is? Turkey! <laughs> so then he keeps driving, and then he stops at the railroad crossing. He's looking at the map again. Lights come up behind the car again. They come up really close. And again, he waves it on. And this is a very Spielbergian trick. Instead of the lights going around the car, the lights slowly rise because as an audience member, you're going, wait a minute. They're not going around. They're going above. And then the railroad crossing signs start shaking and Dreyfus turns on his flashlight. The mailboxes open up. Then the radio goes off. The flashlight goes off and the floodlights from the mothership mm-hmm. shine right down on his pickup truck. Like the, 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 you're watching that moment on the screen, the cinematography of that moment, the way the lights, like they, they don't just flash right on, they, they slowly build, they build up and they're just bright. Mm-hmm. And then the, everything's shaking and the, the, everything, you know, in the car, the, mm-hmm. it's revving up and the radio goes on and off and the, the uh, cigarette holder is, is uh, spewing out the ashes. And then it all stops. It all stops. It's quiet. You hear some crickets chirping again. And then Dreyfus slowly peers out, looking through the front windshield, and he sees he sees the mothership. He's like, what? Mm-hmm. And it's dark, so as a viewer, you can't really see it either. And then he sees the floodlights mm-hmm. flash ahead of the road, and he just sits back in his chair in total shock. And then 
the car goes on. And he's like, what, 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 what? I love you know, that. It's so great. <laughs> the scares are so good and they're funny. They, yeah. they still, they still land. No pun intended. Um, I mean, when I watched it today, like, you know, him jumping at these, even the second one made me laugh. Yeah. And, um, well, it's, I want I wanted to actually ask you because I, I really love the character of Barry. Little Barry, Carrie Guffey. That's right. Yep. And uh, he, um, you know, he, and I think I related to him the most because one of the things that we know, I think, is the Steven Spielberg lore is um, is wonder, right? The look of wonder that yep. everybody has, whether it's Jurassic Park or or whatever it is, you know, like gazing at the thing that you just can't believe. And one of the things that I like that I think is sort of prevalent in Little Spielberg ways throughout his career. Um, like there are some scenes in this movie that reminded me a bit of Poltergeist. And now Poltergeist is directed by, by Toby, Toby Hooper, Hooper, but not really. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but June you know, 4th, 1982. I, I can't, this is so for our listeners who don't know, by the way, I didn't even introduce you uh, okay. because we just were going. We just so, got right into it, Clark, that's but that's this how is, conversation goes. This is my favorite kind of podcasting is when you just dive right in yeah. and, it, and it's a natural. So this, I, my guest today is Scott Mance, uh, probably best known, would you say, from Access Hollywood? Known, that yes. little show. Uh, movie known as the Movie Mance. He's an Oscar favorite and a movie release date aficionado, which yes. I do have I written know, down here. Very strange. I love it. It's great. <laughs> Producer, Emmy nominee, just the best. Um, so, so, but with, with the poltergeist um, analogy, one of the things I love so much about that movie is when the weird stuff starts happening. Yep. Diane, played by Joe Beth Williams, is not scared. She's excited. Oh yeah, yeah, she yeah. She thinks it's like really cool. That's when, right. When when the uh, Caroline yes. uh, slide, she's like, Woo-hoo! yeah, and she can't wait until her husband gets home to be like, look what's yeah. happening. She's like, wait, so wait, cool. wait. She's like, she's like, yes. just stand there, just yes. stand there. She takes off his glasses. Yes, right, right, right. But yeah, yeah. The thing about Carrie uh, Guffey, a uh, uh, Barry in the film, only movie he ever made. Yeah, and also just we were talking about The Shining before we rolled. Stanley Cooper yes. wanted him to play Danny Torrance. What happened Shining. with that? He just didn't want to act anymore. Wow. Like, I talk about, he made one movie. Wow. Steven Spielberg called him One Take Carry. Mm-hmm. But the scene when we intro- were introduced to uh, Barry yes. and Jillian and and Barry, all his toys turn on. Look with care yes. for the shape of a square. And all his toys are rolling across the floor. And he goes downstairs and the camera is always one step behind the aliens. That's you right. see, all you see is a little bit of a light from where the aliens are flashing mm-hmm. their flashlights. But you only see the aliens through his through through Barry's eyes. Yeah. In the kitchen, he's looking up at them and he's smiling. Yeah. Now, the way Spielberg got that smile out of Carrie Guffey is he had somebody pop out of a box to surprise him. <laughs> but it is amazing that that like what you said about how of everyone in the film, it's the kid who expresses the most pure, genuine wonder yes. and delight with what's happening. And I like that he's not afraid. He's you know, not like afraid. for instance, in the scene where he's taken, you know, um, yes, he's not going, This is great, mom, but he ultimately runs out the door. He crawls out of the doggy door. Yep. And his mother goes, Whoa, like, come Whoa, back out. <laughs> and and you know, we're seeing obviously that these people who are chosen throughout the film are drawn to this. But I just loved so much that this little boy was was excited about it. He thought it was fun. He thought it was cool. 
when he wasn't afraid. And I, I related to that because I think uh, there's just a lot to what characters reactions to things are. And I think now, you know, when we have these types of movies, um, you know, the, the, when I say that, I mean, you know, um, whether it's, you know, first contact or whether it's, um, alien abductions or whether it's aliens coming to earth or whatever it is the the reaction is they're hostile there's fear and i think there's room for that too i mean we were talking about the thing earlier yep. but um which is another as i'm sure you know fam- fun steven spielberg <laughs> et crushing the thing uh and coming out around the same year yeah actually the same month yeah e. T. came out june 11th 82 <laughs> the thing came out june 25th two weeks apart and by the way the same day that the thing came out on june 25th uh-huh. Blade Runner came out. Oh, right. That's right. That is a crazy-ass month. It sure is. Yep. Uh, a crazy-ass month for movies that flopped, but have become yeah, some the of the most revered science Jeez. fiction films of all time. Um, but I, I lo- so yeah, I love I love that little character. I love him. I just think he's so darling. And it's not just because he's a cute kid. You know, it, he's darling because he's he's very um, sincere. And like, like the, and all the sort of like defining moments of the film come from him. Like, yes. after after, after uh, a Roy Neary takes off in his truck to to, to follow the spaceships, mm-hmm. and he almost hits Barry with his car. That's right. So he pulls over, and then and then you know, or you know he he you know the the spaceships come flying around, and then there's the little red one at the end, mm-hmm. and he goes ice cream. Yeah, <laughs> I love when it. He, when, when he took his when uh, when uh, uh, Richard Dreyfus uh, took uh, Terry Gar, uh, Ron, his wife Ronnie, to the spot. And she's like, well, what did it look like? He goes, it was shaped like an ice cream cone. I don't know if it was shaped like an ice cream cone. <laughs> you know, and she's like humoring him. Yes. You know, but you see how this movie, it, it, is, it is first contact on a global scale. Mm-hmm. You know, you see the, uh, the code epoxy in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go to India. Where they're I all love chanting. that scene. That scene where they're all chanting, ay, 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 which stands for, um, it actually does stand for something. I it have it written down. He has come. Yep. He has come. Yeah. I mean, it's like watching like everybody chanting and all the 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 officials are like running, you know, walking past the people. And when the one guy goes to the top of the hill and he stops everybody, hi yo, hi yo, he says, stops everybody from chanting. And he goes, you know, in in the native language, he goes, these sounds, where did they come from? And all the you know, mm-hmm. they all like shoot to the air, like like up. They yeah. came from up there. Yeah. You know, it is chilling. And yes. then it cuts like it's a great edit. It's a great cut. You know, they're all it's all you know, that the sound that all the fingers make when they go up, and then it cuts to the uh the the uh, stadium where the astronauts and the officials mm-hmm. are they're they're putting meaning behind the music, mm-hmm. the Kodai reference, which is the hand signals. And and it's just it's such a it's such a smart film. And, but it is, it is so personal. Richard Dreyfuss is the eyes of the audience mm-hmm. because he's the heart and soul of the film. And, uh, you know, his, his descent. Yeah. I want to talk about this because Roy, I, you know, I had a really hard time with Roy. You, didn't, you thought he was unlikable? Uh, yes. 
Yes, I do well, think he is. Uh, yeah, and that's okay. Th- this is the thing, and I'm sure you know this, but as a genre fan, whether the, you know, we get a lot of unlikable characters. Sure. Whether that's superheroes, horror, science fiction, fantasy. I mean, unlikable is not something that I turn away from necessarily. Right. It's okay for characters unlikable. Absolutely. You know, Tony Soprano isn't the most likable person. Of in the course. World, but you still kind of sympathize with him. Well, he is your protagonist. Right. If, if you know, so you're you're stuck with him for lack of a better term, and I'm okay with that. But I did think. He his character was so interesting. You know, we're seeing Spielberg, who had a huge body of television work at this point. And then, of course, he had done Sugarland Express and Jaws. And there's, an, you know, the other feature, which I'm sure you'll know the name Duel. of. Yeah. Uh, well, TV movie. Oh, like Firelight. That. Oh, Firelight. Firelight, yeah. which is mostly lost, right? Yeah. Like, that's what the internet was telling me. But another alien encounter film um, that, that, you know, so you can count that if you want to. But let's say three or four features, right? Feature films, like, in theaters. Right. So, you know, this is such a young man still. And for, and you know, I'm sure you can talk a little bit in terms of the behind the scenes stuff of um, the the screenplay and the credit, who got the credit. Oh, That's yeah. a famous well, yeah, Hollywood Paul story. Yep. Wrote, when, when Paul Schrader wrote the original story, it was called Watch the Skies. Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to be more of a horror film. Right. It was supposed to be darker. Spielberg did an extensive rewrite, and Paul Schrader was incensed. And you know, Paul Schrader was at the height of his powers back then because a taxi driver. That's right. So he removed his name. But the interesting thing, Clark, is this: is that Close Encounters was credited to Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. It was his screenplay. Then the next time Steven Spielberg had a screenplay credit to his name was AI Artificial Intelligence. That was uh, two thousand one, mm-hmm. uh, June. 29th, 2001. Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> sorry, folks. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, uh, you, when you keep going back to Roy Neary, Richard Dreyfus, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's, his, you know, he's alienated his family. He loses yep. his job, alienates his family, drives his wife and kids away, and builds the Devil's Tower in his house. Yes. Uh, by the way, I have to tell you about Devil's Tower. Tell me. You know, that's the only time in a film where you've seen Devil's Tower right. until that movie Paul. Right. Because it was a sort of a spoof of Close mm-hmm. Encounters. So in 2013, uh, April of 2013, I made a pilgrimage. Really? To Devil's Tower in Wyoming. I flew into Rapid City and uh, because because the uh, Mount Rushmore is like 45 minutes away. Uh-huh. So I drove straight from the airport to Mount Rushmore. You know, I'm like, okay, took a few pictures and then drove two hours to, to Devil's Tower. And, you know, they, Wyoming is called Big Sky Country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the freeways there are like almost deserted. Like even like the, any of the LA freeways at three in the morning still have a lot of traffic. Like I thought I was like, it was actually a little scary. But so- when I got off the freeway and I was going, taking the side road to where Devil's Tower was, it was very hilly. There were a lot of hills. Now, at that point, I put the soundtrack to Close Encounters oh, wow. into the CD player in the car. I rented a car. And I cued it to the part when in the film when Richard Dreyfus and Melinda Dillon, mm-hmm. after he picks her up at the train station, after everyone's getting out of there because they think that the hoax about the ga- poison gas is real, and they're driving towards Devil's Tower. So I'm listening to that soundtrack. And at the moment in the film, when they pull the car over, it screeches to a halt, and they're seeing Devil's Tower for the first time. 
we're watching them see Devil's Tower for yeah. the first time. The reveal for the rest of us happens a few moments later when they climb the hill and there it is. So I'm driving over the hills and I get to that point and and you know, I'm listening to the build up of the music and just at the moment when Richard Dreyfus and Melinda Dillon climb to the top of the hill and see Devil's Tower, like at that moment, I come over a hill and there's Devil's Tower. And I had to pull over because I was like seeing it with my own eyes for the first time after, after decades of just watching a movie over and over again. I was overcome with so much emotion and that like as I was driving closer and closer, I kept pulling over and taking pictures and taking pictures. And, and then I checked into this little motel and then I went back and I walked through the park and I had my iPod that has the soundtrack and I'm walking around Devil's Tower on the trails, listening to the soundtrack. And it was, well, obviously a moment I'll never forget, but I was so inspired by that movie. I'm like, I have to see Devil's Tower with my own eyes. Yeah. And the next day, uh, when I went left and I was driving away, I pulled over and I just sat on a hill. I'm just staring at it because, like, you know, it's in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. It's not like you could scoot over to the Statue of Liberty while you're in Manhattan. Right. I thought I'll probably never come back here again. I just wanted to take one last look at Devil's Tower. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and and actually, it was when I flew back to LA on April 2nd. And I landed at LA and I turned on my phone and I started getting emails about Roger Ebert passing away. Oh, wow. And I know that he was a big champion of the film. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, that was a, a weekend I'll never forget. But, you know, when you see the mothership mm-hmm. come over Devil's Tower, there's no music, you know, and everyone's just looking up like, oh my God. Like that image, and then the music swells, and then the mothership turns over. Yeah. And you're like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah, like I, you know, it's funny because I wrote down so many times while I was watching the film, and and the score and the sounds are so iconic in this movie. However, I wrote down how quiet it was. There's so many scenes that there is no music, or there's so many scenes where there is no dialogue, and you're just letting these things happen. You're letting them sort of um, breathe and unfold yeah. in a way. And it, and so I suppose when I said earlier that I, f- when I was a kid, maybe I felt like it was slow. Perhaps what I meant to say is it's a movie that you have to be patient through. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah, sure, I mean, and I didn't sure. mean, I don't certainly don't mean it as a criticism. Plus when you're a kid, your tastes are, I mean, you know, and I'm not, that's not true for all children clearly because you are mesmerized by it. And, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting, but speaking of kids, so there's a scene at the dinner table, the mashed potato scene yeah. clearly. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, it's interesting about that one. I, so I wrote down, you know, there's, I think that you see a lot of similarities through Steven Spielberg's entire body of work um, or things that you can recognize. You know, you can, I'm sure you know, being a film person, it's that old film school trope of auteur theory sure. or whatever you want to call yep. it, right? Andrew Saris's auteur theory. Right. Yep. So you uh-huh. can pull, you can look at a, a frame from a movie and go, that's Quentin Tarantino or right. that's Steven Spielberg or mm-hmm. and fill in the blank. So there's, 
the scene, Jaws is one of my favorite movies of all time. Okay. And so there's the scene between the Brody and his little baby son uh, when they're sitting at the dinner table and, you know, they just make faces at each other and, and like the kid, you know, he, Brody's making a move and then the kid does the move and then yeah. he does like this. Yeah, and it's, so, it's yeah. such a, like to me that's, and I always say that if that scene were in a movie today, it'd be cut like that. Nobody lets anything breathe, breathe anymore, anymore, right? Yeah. So I take that back to Close Encounters because the shot where Richard Dreyfuss is trying to fill, figure out what's going on with these mashed potatoes or what he's seeing in his head and his son is here in the, in the left side in the of the frame, frame yep. and just tears are pouring out of this child's face. Yeah, yeah. And it's it, a and deep it, focus too. And it doesn't cut, you know, it just keeps going and, and, or if it does cut, there are just a handful. It's not, you know, it's not a heavily chopped scene. And so I just think like when I think about juxtaposing those two fathers and those two sons in these quiet moments at the dinner table. It couldn't be more different. Um, and I just, that scene was such a mystery to me, the one in Close Encounters, because that little boy we hear so little from, you yeah, know what I'm saying? Totally. Well, also, you know, comparing Close Encounters to Jaws, the movies are actually more alike than unalike, because what made the suspense in Jaws work? The fact you that don't you see, didn't the see the shark. Yep. What made the suspense in Close Encounters work? You don't see the aliens. You don't see the aliens. Until, you see the ships, yeah. but you don't see right. the aliens. And when you're at the uh, the encampment at the base camp of uh, of Devil's Tower, and the, you know there's the light show, and there's the UFO show, and then there's the mothership. And I love the scene when they're they're playing the pop tones, they're playing the mm -hmm. Kadai music, and 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 they're just going sort of back and forth. And then they get into like a conversation, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. they're like, oh, we're taking over this conversation now. Yeah. And then there's talking, it's like exciting. And then it stops and you're, da -da -da -da. and it's like, did I say something wrong? And then the door opens and everybody freaks out. And then you see, you know, the beginning of the film, you saw the planes from Flight That's 19. Right. So to call back to that, mm -hmm. the first humans off the spaceship mm -hmm. and they go, he got guy goes, uh, Captain John, you know, Flight 19. He goes, good to have you back, soldier. Right. Good to have you back. And they're like, they just left. They just got picked up. Mm -hmm. When the guy goes, they haven't even aged. Einstein was right. Einstein was probably. That's a great them. line. That's so great many line. good lines in this movie. And, you know, just, and just like, you know, when they were, you know, each of those pilots, you know, and the, the officials are kind of like, good to have you back, soldier. Good to have you back. And the, again, the music that underscores all that. And then, you know, you see the dog slide down. And then, you know, Melinda Dillon, she's taking pictures and then she sees Barry. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, that, and when, when she picks up Barry again like that, it's so, it's so moving. And then the door closes. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Richard Dreyfus has made it. Yeah. He, he's standing right there in front of the mothership. And Claude Lacombe, mm -hmm. uh, Francois Truffaut says mm -hmm. to him, Mr. Neary, what do you want? And Freud goes, I just want to know that it's really happening. Mm -hmm. And then the, he smiles at him. And then the door opens again. This time, you see the alien slowly come down and peek out. And they're all standing back. And then with the light behind the alien, he just like is like, you know, lifts up his, <clears throat> lifts up his arms. And then all the other little mm -hmm. aliens come out. And it's... 
It's, it's an amazing film. It is. It absolutely is an amazing film. And, you know, I, I think it's the, the thing. Another thing that I noticed while I was watching it, and I think it's it's really important because a lot of people in the world that we work in and audience and you know, professionals included, say that they are fans of film. They love movies. They love cinema. But they oftentimes sometimes skip. They don't they don't go back, right? right? And when I was watching this movie, it was impossible to separate how much it has informed genre storytelling and ma- a lot of mainstream films that have come after it. I mean, certain sequences that I was like, I've, I recognize that from Independence Day. Yeah. I recognize that from this movie. Absolutely. You know, and it's these, these influences are so important to recognize where they came from. I, I thought of, this is going to sound silly at first, but with the matrix. Okay. So you know, the Matrix became such a pop culture phenomenon. May March thirty first, nineteen ninety nine. Perfect. <laughs> so I couldn't even fact check you if I wanted to. But so they, um, the Matrix is a movie that was just so iconic for what it was, and then when it influenced so much that came after it. When you look back at the Matrix, you're like, I've seen all this before. I've seen oh, this. Absolutely. I've seen that. Yeah. And and it's hard for people looking back sometimes to give credit. To the original. To the original. Like when you're watching a film like Casablanca. Yes. Which has been, which has been referenced, which has been uh, borrowed from, which has been copied or attempted to be copied so many times over the years. And then you go back and watch that movie, especially if you're seeing it for the first time. Oh, yeah. You have to be like, okay, this was the first time. Right. This all this was done. Especially when you're watching a movie like Citizen Kane. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, it is, it is very... You know, you, you see, you see so many films that were inspired by this one movie. That when you go back and watch this one movie, you're like, "Oh, I've seen it before." But no, no, this was the one that did it, and that happens a lot with Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Like so many films have been inspired by Blade Runner, Strange Days, uh, City of Lost Children, uh, definitely Children of Men. Oh, sure. And and I mean, just even though the movie bombed and it's not even that great of a movie, Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. Was so Blade Runner. Absolutely. That, but, and you know, watching Ghost in the Shell, I kept thinking, I'd rather be watching Blade Runner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's the yeah. problem when you're aping another movie. It's totally. like you, you're like, I'd rather be watching the the, the first one, the you're good one. You're asking for it. Exactly. Totally, totally. Tread lightly. But but you know the the uh, uh, when I saw Close Encounters again in 1980, it had the special edition right. where you see the inside of the spaceship. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I was 12 years old, when that happened, and and I didn't care, you know, people were, you know, later were like, oh, how, you know, it's like, that's, that they caved to pressure to the studio. They wanted to re-release the film with like, <clears throat> you know, some more content. Mm-hmm. But the version that he redid uh, in like 2000, whatever it was, two, uh, or the late 90s, like his, his definitive cut is the one that I always watch mm-hmm. now. And... You know, when he goes up in the spaceship, the last words and the film belong to Barry. Yes. Bye-bye. Yep. So it's, it's per- I, noticed that, I noticed that myself, too, that Barry got the last word. He got the last and- word. And, and the other thing about, uh, so in the film, the score is, features snippets of When You Wish Upon a Star. Yes. The film was credited, the screenplay is credited to Spielberg. Mm-hmm. The next time, as I said, the next time Spielberg wrote a screenplay was AI. What is AI? Pinocchio. 
Exactly. Yes. Clark Wolf. Yes, sir. You're onto it. You <laughs> are sure onto am. it. Hey, you got I that serves. I'm high with five. you. I'll nice. take your high you five. You are with me on this Clark Wolf. I'm so yes. with you. But I did notice that. You know, I noticed the theme playing through the through the film and and I noticed so much um pop culture, like so many pop culture references of the time. I mean, this was a days of our lives is in there. Totally. Um, McDonald's, Shell Oil, Baskin Robbins, like there's so much uh, contemporary product placement. And, and I say product placement, I don't mean that in like a cash grab kind of way, but I mean, these products are so heavily there that to me, it actually did make me feel like I knew that town because I grew up in a suburb oh, that did. was very much, it wasn't like that in that it, did, it wasn't in the middle of nowhere, but that felt like a the the choice to show me McDonald's and gas stations and you know Baskin Robbins and just just you know common Americana that you see everywhere. It just made me feel like yeah, it's like a suburb of, that I grew up in or anyone grew up in. One of the things that always amazed me about Close Encounters is the shift in tones. Yes, because you know we talked about how how it goes. You go through so many emotions watching the film. Yes. But at no point does one tone intrude on the other. For example, towards the end of the film, when Roy and and, uh, uh, Jillian are trying to race over Devil's Tower Mm -hmm. before the helicopter spraying the sleeping gas gets to them. And it's, it's it's a suspenseful scene. You know, it's very sort of like North by Northwest a little yes, bit. Yes, absolutely. And you know, they're you know, she's at the top of the hill and he's exhausted and he's trying to to climb up and he keeps like sliding back down the hill. And and she's like, Come on, let's go. Mm-hmm. Yes, let's mm-hmm. go. And and the helicopter's coming, it starts to spray, and he just like gives it his last all. She he, she grabs his mm-hmm. hand, pulls him, and they go over, and just like that, with the snap of a finger, you're seeing base camp and you're hearing the shift in the music, mm-hmm. the sense of wonder, and you hear the guy over the loudspeaker, uh, bring the lights down, you know, sixty percent, please, you know, or however many percent it is, and he goes, "I don't think we could have asked for a more beautiful night, do you, folks?" And then they're just like looking, like, "What is going on?" And you hear, "Okay, watch the skies," mm-hmm. and then like, "Watch the skies." Do you know what that's a reference to? I'm yeah. sure you do. Uh, watch the skies is the original name of the screenplay. And you know what that's a reference to? Uh, watch the skies. No, tell me. The thing from another world. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Way to go! <laughs> you high five. Yeah, five with that, Clark Wolf. <laughs> I, ta- I I'm so happy that I was able to tell you at least one little it. fact. Okay, it. now something that I'm uh, want to do on this show that I I'm trying to task my my guests with doing. Sure. So you guys picked your movie from the existing AFI lists. It could have been anything, and uh, and so we talked about Close Encounters of the Third. Kind, which, by the way, just because I did the research, did so research, let's huh? let's put the stats up there on the board. Uh, the AFI list, you know, was uh, announced in 1997, and um, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind was uh, ranked at number 64 of the greatest American films of nice. all time. Yep. And when the Cheers list happened, which is the most inspiring, oh. it was ranked at number 58. Is that right? It I didn't sure know there is. was a Cheers list. Yes, Cheers, laughs, uh, thrills, heroes. Ooh, yeah, there's a I lot of look lists. At that list. There's a lot of lists. Okay. So, but here's the bummer: uh, in the 2007 revised AFI 100 oh, no, list, it's not on the list is it? It got bumped. It got bumped. But 
But it got replaced by another Steven Spielberg movie. Wait a minute. So uh, take a guess, because the other four, Steven Spielberg, by the way, fun AFI uh, list fact, yep. is uh, he has five movies on the top 100 in 97 and five movies in the top 100 in 2007. So one of the films that got bumped, the film that got bumped from the original list was Close Encounters. That's what right. did it get replaced by? Uh, and, the, and the list was revised when? In 2007. In 2007. So that would mean... That uh, uh, a Minority Report? Saving Private Ryan. Oh, well, of course, right, because I was 98. Yeah. So Saving Private Save it, Ryan. Pri- Saving Private Ryan. Bumped Close Encounters. Yeah, it was, I mean, now, it, I don't think Saving Private Ryan, like, took its, you know, number right, um, right, specifically, right. But, but, but yeah, yeah, in terms of the five Spielberg movies. So the other, the other four, I'm just going to guess, were Jaws, Raiders, E.T., and Schindler's List. Yes. Right. Correct. Right, right, correct. Right. So I say all that to say, I have asked you guys, my guests, to pick a movie that is not on the AFI list uh, that you would add. And so do you have a movie that you would add to that the list? Just, just a movie or one that's sort of in the realm? Any Anything. Anything that in American film that you would add to the AFI top 100 uh, that isn't there. I, I think you know what I'm going to go with. What are you going to go with? Can you guess? Uh, yeah. Say it, say it. Blade Runner? No, Blade Runner's on there. What is it? La La Land. Oh! La La Land! I am not over it. Clark, You're I am not over this. Me. I am not over this. I am not over this. I mean, I'm happy Moonlight won and all that stuff, oh, but La La Land was robbed the best picture. Oh, I love the hell out of that movie. You talk about magic. That movie is magic. It has a big mm-hmm. heart. Emma Stone is the heart and soul of that movie. Damien Chazelle was so inspired by the classic musicals of the 50s, mm-hmm. and it felt like a throwback to the musicals of the 50s, but it was also very current and contemporary. And I loved that it, it made L.A. look really inviting. It looked like a... It, it depicted L.A. the way that I have always seen L.A. for the last 26 years mm-hmm. that I've been living here. I mean, yeah, there's there's movies that make L.A. look like a rough place. Mm-hmm. There's places... There's, there's movies about L.A. that make it look very dystopian, like Blade Runner. But... The, the, what I love the most about LA, you know, the the the, the magic, the showbiz, the landmarks, uh, the the dreamers who move out here to follow their dreams. I thought that movie captured that perfectly, and I thought Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone had great chemistry, mm-hmm. and I loved the ending of the film. Mm. Spoiler alert! Uh, well, I won't spoil it completely, but I loved the way the movie ended, and to that I'll just say. One of the reasons the movie really connected to me is because here are these two people. By the way, the cinematography is mm-hmm. great, and I'm not the biggest musical guy. I'm not. Mm-hmm. But the movie, it's not wall-to-wall music. There's songs occasionally. There's dancing occasionally. Mm-hmm. It's not like Chicago or, or you know, not even Dreamgirls. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, you know, it's a musical, but it's also a love story and a romantic comedy. Um, but... People in LA, they move out here to follow their dreams. And I felt like, like here are these two people who fell for each other because they each had a, each one had a passion for what they were going after. He had the jazz, she was going after the acting thing. And they inspired each other because of their passion. They elevated each other. And at the moment that they 
you know, the, like you know, they came to a moment where the very thing that drove them together broke them up. Right. And I, I've been there. Mm-hmm. I know the feeling. And I related to it. I absolutely related to that feeling of like, well, you know, I love this about this person and that person loves this about me. And we, we were supporting each other, inspiring each other, you know, encouraging each other. But then you just get to a certain point where the things that you loved about each other get in the way of the relationship mm-hmm. lasting. Now, it, it ended. It didn't end badly, obviously, because you could tell that they still loved each other, that they were grateful for each other, and they just, they just gave each other that look at the end of the film. Okay, full disclosure, does La La Land really need to be on the AFI top 100 list? Probably not. But I just <laughs> love the movie to pieces, Clark Wolf, oh. and I just, you know, I, I, in, in my 20 years of reviewing films, and, and in the you know 16 years that I've been covering the Oscars for mm-hmm. Access Hollywood, I uh, I, it just, it really got to me, you know, mm-hmm. I really, you know, for six months since I saw the movie Telluride was like, this is, this is going to win. Mm-hmm. And I really believed it did. And I really believed it would. But then like the month before the Oscars suddenly found myself having to defend the film. Mm-hmm. Like there was a, there was a backlash against mm-hmm. it. Like, oh, well, it's about a white guy who likes jazz. So what? Mm-hmm. So, I mean. I know a lot of people who like jazz. Sure. White people who like jazz. I love jazz. I really I love do. Jazz. Yeah. And like like Chet Baker was white. Sure. He was, he's a jazz legend. Sure. So like like why bring race into it? You know. Oh, the movie wasn't about anything. Can't it just be a love story? Mm-hmm. You know. Why, why does it have to be like? Yeah. Moonlight was a bolder film in terms of like tackling a a, a subject matter that that should be in the forefront mm-hmm. of American cinema, and it it is now that it won. And speaking of the way that it won. I feel like at the moment, you know, because I was in the audience, uh-huh. and when all the commotion started to happen, I got scared because I thought somebody was rushing the stage to crash the Oscars. Oh, wow. I mean, it was all very fast. Sure. But when people were looking up, what's going on? I was like, like if there was any moment during this political upheaval uh-huh. since the election yeah. where somebody was going to make a statement, best picture was yeah. that moment. Yeah. And, and, then, you know, it turned into what it turned into. And, you know, I had to sort of sleep on it to appreciate the show of grace and dignity and the, the, the diversity on stage, the unity mm-hmm. of that diversity on stage, they're all hugging each other, mm-hmm. was a beautiful moment that transcended either movie just winning Best Picture. Because five years from now, if Blue, Moonlight won without all the fanfare, you would... Uh, probably forget what won Best Picture for mm-hmm. 2016. You won't now. In fact, for, the, for decades, both of those movies will be remembered in the same breath. And I think that's better and means a lot more than just winning Best Picture. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, the Oscars are tough. The Oscars are tough because they are so political. Um, and I think I'm not, I would never, ever try to argue with you about La La Land, Scott Vance. <laughs> I know better. Uh, but, and I don't really have much of an, ar- I wouldn't make much of an argument even if I, if I did. Uh, but I think my thing with it, and I think the, Sure, there were there were other elements to the backlash as well, but I do think similar to what we came to with 
does it really need to be on the AFI greatest 100 movies of all time list? Well, maybe not, but you just love it so much. And I that's fair. Because yeah. this is your list. This is your edition. Um, and I think that for me, that was my reaction to all of the Oscar buzz for the film was just like, did I enjoy the movie? Yeah. Does it, why, you know, what you said earlier, why does it have to be, you know, more than just a love story and a sweet musical and inspirational? It doesn't. But I think with you know great power comes great responsibility and so when you have uh when you have um you know accolades and and really the oscars are supposed to be the greatest movies of the year when you look at it you go is that the best movie i saw this year right you know there's something that i think we all talk about all the time in the business that we're in best and favorite sometimes they're the same sometimes they're not sometimes they're not and that's totally okay but when you have the awards hoopla that's talk about Close Encounters. Bring yeah. it back to where we started here. Close Encounters is my is my favorite Steven Spielberg movie. Mm-hmm. Is it his best? No, I, I'd probably say that Raiders of the Lost Ark is mm. his best film. Followed close behind by E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and they came out a year apart. Yeah, I mean, what a what talk about someone who was in the zone. Oh yeah, you know, to go from like. Jaws to Close Encounters to, well, 1941, but Raiders, E.T., I mean, incredible. And then Temple of Doom and Color Purple. I, I, I mean, I look, Spielberg is, personally, he's my favorite director mm-hmm. because I grew up with his movies and I'm still watching them new. Yeah. You know, like other directors like Hitchcock or John Ford uh, or even Kubrick are directors that I sort of discovered later mm-hmm. by going back. But everything is Spielberg from Jaws on I saw in theaters. And that is... You know that's awesome, mm-hmm. but uh, but you know you're right. It's all it's all subjective anyway. Like like another movie that I would actually put on the AFI list is Children of Men. Oh, mm-hmm. because I to me that was the best movies of the aughts. Yeah, I mean that was the Blade Runner of the 21st yeah. century. A movie that was that was underappreciated when it came out, mm-hmm. but. You talk to people now. Everyone you talk to, like, oh my god, that movie's amazing. Yes, and it is a masterpiece. Great answer. Love awesome. it. Love it. I think that's it for us, Scott. I think we're good, Clark Wolf. All right. High five. High five. High five. Thanks for having me on your first show. What yeah. an honor. Thanks for coming. Yay. Yay. All right. friends that's going to do it for us today i hope you enjoyed that episode of sending the wolf discussing close encounters with scott mance um got a little emotional there it's very sweet uh you know that's the whole this episode is one of it's a very very unique and special one and of course it would have to be with scott of course it would have to be the very first one um so thank you guys so much for listening once again please rate review and subscribe um that is a huge help to me and this thursday i know i say it every week about the mini episodes, but honestly, it's true every week about the mini episodes. This week's mini, Scott and I are diving into the career of Steven Spielberg, and we sort of get into the idea that there has been a big change or a big, uh, a drastic shift in his storytelling. And we sort of talk about uh, his relationship with aliens and when that shift in his career came. It's a really, really cool conversation. It's very special because it's the first one and it's the one that made me realize how I wanted to do these mini episodes. So it's kind of nice. If you contribute $5 or more monthly to 
to the Patreon, clarkwolf.com slash Patreon. You get access to all of the mini episodes that come out every Thursday. Alrighty, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Wishing you a very happy and healthy new year. Um, Thank you for all of your love and support and kindness over 2017. And here's hoping that 2018 is bigger and better and brighter. Happy New Year. Thank you.